Principal Matters Podcast, episode 172. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, I'm talking to my guest, John Wink, about his new book, A Teacher's Guide to Excellence in Every Classroom. If you'd like other free resources like this one, you can check out all my posts at my website at williamdparker.com. John Wink currently serves as the superintendent of Carthage ISD in Carthage, Texas. And prior to that, John served as the director of curriculum instruction and assessment for the Tatum Independent School District in Tatum, Texas, and principal of Gilmer Elementary School. And with over 20 years of experience in education, he has served as a choir teacher at Longview High School, principal at Gilmer Elementary School, Hallsville Middle School, and Hallsville High School, and assistant superintendent of curriculum instruction and assessment at Tatum ISD. He's also been the superintendent of Blue Ridge ISD in Blue Ridge, Texas, before his current assignment. He's the author of two books, A Leader's Guide to Excellence in Every Classroom, and his newest book, A Teacher's Guide to Excellence in Every Classroom, that's released by Solution Tree Press this month. John, welcome to Principal Matters. Fill in the gaps on that intro. I'm sure I've left out some chronology in all of your great education experience, but fill in the gaps on that and tell us anything else that might surprise listeners to know about you. Well, first off, thank you for having me on the Principal Matters podcast. Super excited to be talking about my new book and just my work. Uh, Filling in the gaps, I would just say that one of the things I'm real proud of is that I'm a practitioner. I'm doing the work Uh, living in the world. Not not everything that I do is perfect. Sometimes it's ugly, it's messy, uh, it's stressful, uh, it's exhilarating, and it's overwhelming, but it's the work that I do. So I really love uh, what I'm doing in education. But aside from that, probably my my number one result that I love the most is that I've been married to my wife, Carolyn, for 26 years, and we have four beautiful children, and that just make me proud each and every day. So family is number one, and all this other stuff is number two. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, let's let's give a shout out to your kids because I've got four back in my home. So uh, ages, what, what, who do you have back at the Wink House? Uh, Hunter's about to be 25. Hannah will be 21 in March. Holly is sweet 16 and Haley's 14. And uh, they're awesome. Wow. Well, congratulations, John, on your leadership and your beautiful family. And I do follow you on Twitter. So I often see the posts that you have celebrating the great things that are happening at your school and with your family. Thank you so much for the time that you've given today. Because when we're talking at this moment, um, you just finished a full day as a superintendent of schools and Carthage ISD in Carthage, Texas. And so you're squeezing in this conversation between meetings and something else that you're going to go to now that even after the school hours was because superintendents continue to work through the evening. So I just want to dive straight into some of the topics that you cover in your newest book. And just so Principal Matters listeners have some some context, John and I have known each other online for uh, several years. Uh, Both of us are Solution Tree authors. And John, I first followed you on Twitter when you did Love My Student Hashtag Days, and you were hosting principals and teachers across the U.S celebrating the great things happening in their schools. And that was the first time that I had really begun to interact with your content. And then both of us began to share ideas back and forth. And eventually we invited you to Oklahoma with COSA, the superintendent and principals association that I work for here in Oklahoma to have you as one of the speakers at last summer's leadership conference. And so thank you for the work that you do for Texas, for Oklahoma, for schools across the nation. But John, in your new book, you talk about 
several important topics, classroom management, relationships, student engagement, rigor and mastery. And in so much of the PD that I'm listening to and reading and attending today, it's been refreshing to see so many leaders embrace the importance of positive relationships and culture, but positivity still doesn't replace strong procedures and routines. So I was really intrigued when I saw you including that as a chapter in your book. And can you go there first? Why are routines and procedures still such an essential foundation for good learning? Well, I think the the very first thing is, I think in schools today, teachers have more demands than ever in the history of education. And typically what happens from a leadership perspective when you're trying to go through the school improvement process, the very first thing that we want to go to is we want to go to rigor. We want to go to standards. We want to go to, you know, what are the, what's the concentrated instruction we need to focus on? What's RTI need to look like? All those sorts of things. And I think that that's very difficult, especially if you're a new teacher or you're a teacher in a new content area uh, or a teacher that's had some really difficult times working with kids. So in my book, uh, A Teacher's Guide to Excellence in Every Classroom, I kind of ask teachers to think about this. If you focus on everything, you focus on nothing. And what that really means is, is that in that if you focus on rigor, but you don't focus on building a home for learning, then all of that rigor is going to go by the wayside. It's going to be very difficult to engage today's students. And so we all believe in this philosophy that that we want to turn our house into a home. Well, you can't have a home until you have a house first. And so building that house is about building structure, putting up the walls of how learning needs to look in a classroom. And, and And the house of learning falls into the routines that we want students to see every day, uh, the procedures or how we want those routines to be conducted each and every day. And and the other thing is that we really want to do, the most important thing about routines and procedures is that routines and procedures have to be routine. They have to be done regularly. But more importantly than that, I think that, that kids today need to be in schools where there's consistency. So building routines and procedures where they're consistent from teacher to teacher. So students especially those that come from inconsistent homes, can anticipate what those expectations are for not just behavior, but how we walk into the room and get started. How do we transition effectively and quickly? How do we um, make sure that we handle our things at the end of class before the bell rings? I think a lot of those things seem like really, really small details that, that we, we should automatically know how to do. But what I've found in my experience and, and my observations over the years is that if you leave those things to to assuming that kids know what to do, chances are you're going to be really set up for failure and those kids are really going to uh, disappoint you and not meet your high expectations because you didn't take the time to really lay out the floor plan. Going back to this house analogy, what is the floor plan that you need to design and the walls that you need to put up so the students essentially know what their lane is and how to stay in that lane uh, in a way that the goal is reached And the goal that I'm talking about is not good behavior. The goal that we're striving for is we want students to be independent learners and take ownership of their learning. And so that doesn't happen by just hope. It happens when you build structures so that learning uh, is fostered because routines and procedures took all of the guesswork out of how to 
how to work and how to learn and how, more importantly, how to interact with our peers and behave. And, and so that's why routines and procedures are just such a, a non-negotiable for me because kids need to have that structure. They want that structure. And when we provide it, it's amazing to watch how they, how they thrive in a learning environment. Yeah. And I know you agree with this too, John, that school leaders have to be models for routine and structure for their teachers, for teachers to be modeling that in classrooms. And so it's, it's really pretty amazing when you think about how those same lessons that happen in the classrooms, and I know your first book was on, on leaders, the guide for excellence in every classroom. But some, sometimes when I'm talking to principals, I try to, because I ask them, you know, tell me what, what your best teachers look like. Tell me the processes that are happening in their classrooms that make them seem so magic. And really the magic happens because of two, those two worlds. They've got one, really great processes and routines and procedures on the one hand, which provides those kids with consistency and expectations so that they can do really creative learning. And so when you've got both going on at the same time, then suddenly you have what you think is that magic classroom that's happening. But schools have that kind of option too, you know, because if you think about school as the the larger version of that classroom, it's just as important for principals to have their own routines and their own procedures and their own expectations because that consistency school-wide gives that entire school the ability to move forward. What do you think about that? Well, I think I'm going to go back to something that when I was in Blue Ridge, I hired a new principal, uh, Dr. Chris Miller, fantastic leader, and he's going to do great things there. And we were having a conversation one day about just a situation that came up uh, that involved, uh, I can't remember exactly what it involved, but it involved a, a difficult situation that involved a parent being frustrated. And really the reason why that parent was frustrated was because that parent could not anticipate what that teacher was going to do. And, and, and it wasn't the teacher's fault. That was the teacher's workflow, and the teacher was doing a good job. But the parent was not able to anticipate what to expect. And, and so one of the things that, that Chris talked about in that conversation, he said, you know, one of the things that I think is real important both as teachers and as leaders is that we have to be boringly predictable. And I love that phrase because that's so true. If you can anticipate what the leader's going to do before you even do it, then you know what's going to happen. And so I, I try to be boringly predictable in my work. I know that that every week, my weekly communication to the district. Now, I'm, I mean, I'm superintendent, but I still send a weekly communication out to the district. It comes out to my teachers on Friday at 8 a.m. My board of trustees, they receive an email from me every Friday at 7 a.m., my community receives a message from me on Friday at 6 p.m. And then it comes out again on Sunday at 6 p.m. So that way everybody can anticipate, hey, what is John Wink going to talk about this week? So they know that my communication is going to be boringly predictable. Same thing with my visibility. They know that I'm going to be at certain places throughout the week. They don't know exactly when it's going to be, but they can anticipate when I'm going to be there. And if I'm not there, they can say, hey, I thought, where were you this week? You weren't here. And that's really cool because you want people to anticipate what you're going to do because when they anticipate what they do, the anxiety, the stress goes down. And that's a great thing uh, for leaders to remember. Be boringly predictable in your work. And it'll be amazing how your routines and your procedures work such in such a way that helps the teachers create that same, uh, that same environment for their students. Yeah, and boringly predictable does not mean that you are that you're not engaging students or that kids are bored in their learning. It means that 
teachers and kids have a consistent expectation that lowers the anxiety. So they're not having to worry about what to expect. That's taken care of. So then they have the freedom to actually learn. And I love that, John. It, It makes me remember some things that I've told school leaders too, which is your teachers obviously need you to be visible. They need you to be present. They need a leader or you wouldn't be there. But your ultimate goal is to help your school get to the place where it could run independently without you. Not that you're not needed, but if you create the right systems and processes and procedures and routines, you should be able to step away and that school can manage without you. Just like students, a great teacher can create the routines and processes in a classroom where they can step away from the learning for a moment and watch those kids learn without them. And so I love that. I love it that you start there with that foundation, uh, that important foundation for learning. Something else that you that you focus on in this book too is guiding teachers and increasing student engagement. And I'd love for you to talk about that, John, for a little bit about why why is student, we all know as educators that engaged learners learn more than unengaged learners, but talk a little bit about some lessons that you help teachers understand in your book about the importance of student engagement. Well, I think one of the things about engagement is I think in, in where we've made the, the fatal error in engagement is it's, we think it's something that we do to kids or even for kids. And I really don't think that that is what engagement is. And I, I go back to uh, my relationship with my wife. You know, if we stayed, if, if we accomplished the goal of getting engaged and we didn't focus on it from that point forward, chances are we wouldn't be married 25 years later. And so the way I equate this in my book is that it's a joint relationship. It's a joint responsibility. It's half teacher. It's half student. And the goal is not about teaching. The goal is about students actively learning from bell to bell. But in order for students to actively learn from bell to bell, that teacher has to be observant. Just like in a relationship, I have to be observant of my wife and I have to pick up on cues. And when I notice that things are not working well, or maybe things, maybe, maybe she's frustrated, I've got to make that adjustment. And what that we have to do when it comes to that engagement relationship in the classroom is we have to start by building a relationship first. And in chapter four of that book, we talk about building the optimum relationships for learning so we can leverage that to create the right culture for learning. One of the other things that I think is real frustrating about engagement is that I have a different definition of engagement than you do, Will. And part of that is because my experiences as a teacher formulated that that definition of engagement. What is considered engagement to me may not be exactly the same thing as considered to a chemistry teacher. So one of the things that I think is real important as leaders, we've got to get away from saying nebulous words. Uh, We'll talk about rigor. That's another word that's very nebulous and nobody knows what the heck it means. But differentiation is another word. What does that really mean when it comes down to to students learning at high levels? So in this book, I I use Fisher and Fry's work Uh, their gradual release model. And we actually define the components of engagement through the lens of gradual release. So we talk about things such as a warm-up. When students walk in the room, we're actively engaging kids with prior learning or uh, prerequisite skills. Then we have a focus lesson where students where the teacher's modeling learning while the students are doing note-taking, which we know is a high-leverage skill for college. 
we have we know that tier one in intervention is very important, but that component in the engagement is called guided learning. Uh, we have collaborative learning because we know if we don't allow kids to collaborate, they're going to collaborate. They're just not going to collaborate about your about your learning. And then we end uh, the gradual release with the independent learning. And then one of the things that I really promote that is a high yield strategy in in instruction is formative assessments through exit tickets. So we talk a lot about, instead of thinking of that, I have 50 minutes to teach these kids, let's start thinking through the lens of I have 10 five-minute chunks of time to actively engage these students throughout the course of this period. And so in, in my book, I share lots of ideas about how teachers can collaborate in ways to learn with and from one another to strengthen engagement. But back on the teachers, uh, the leader's guide, which I look at these two books as they are their companion books. One's for the principal and assistant principal. The teacher guide is for the instructional coach, the teacher leader, the teacher. They have the same, the same big ideas, but there's different responsibilities that the teacher has than what the leader has. And so the whole idea is, I think that leaders make the big mistake by saying we want engagement. We don't know what that is. Let's define it. So because once we define what engagement means in our school, then we can refine it. We can make it better each and every day. And that's really been the secret to the success of the teachers in the schools where I've worked is that they don't talk about teaching from bell to bell. They talk about how we're going to get these kids to learn from the moment they walk in to the moment they walk out. So that's a little short blip on what I think about engagement. It's a relationship, not something we do to kids. Mm, It's a relationship, not something that we do to kids and Principal Matters listeners, I want you to just park there for just a moment too, because one of the things that I like to think about when I'm when I'm engaging in the conversation about in student engagement, John, is I like to apply that to the work that we model for teachers too. And so Principal Matters listeners, you might be a building principal, you might be a central office person, you might be an assistant principal, you might be a teacher. But those of you that are listening who are in leadership, If student engagement can be defined in stages like warm-ups, focused learning, guided learning, collaborative learning, independent learning, and exit tickets as assessments, if you can break down that engagement so that you can figure out what are the steps that are necessary for kids to be engaged, how are you modeling that in in the kind of learning that you're doing with your own staff and your own teachers? And so, John, part of the challenge I try to give principals is how do we model that in the learning that we're doing? So if we want these things to be happening in our classrooms, are we modeling them in our own PD? So this isn't something that we simply expect from teachers. We need to be modeling these things for our teachers. Well, you brought up a great point. And um, in my last book, uh, Leader's Guide, I said we can't, I, I left a quote there that said, we can't expect teachers to adopt strategies that we don't clearly support and articulate. One of the things that I think is very important, and tomorrow I'll be meeting with my chief learning officer, and we'll be mapping out our our principals meeting that we'll be having that afternoon. And one of the things that we do is we don't approach a meeting through the lens of what are we going to talk about. We want that principals meeting to be a learning experience. So we talk about, all right, what is the bell ringer going to be? That's in our principal meeting. All right, what's the exit ticket going to be? Okay, we have these things to talk about. Now, how do we want the principals to learn with, and is this going to be more of a focus lesson where I present and they take notes, or is this going to be more of a collaborative learning where they have the background knowledge, now need them to collaborate and share with one another? One of the things we talk about constantly is how are we going to engage our learners? And that can't happen in classrooms with students 
if principals and assistant principals don't consider how they're going to engage their teachers when they have meetings. Don't think about faculty meetings as a meeting. Think about it as a learning opportunity. Think about it as this is my opportunity to model for you how I want you to provide the model classroom. I mean, that's it's just if you want it to happen in classrooms, it's got to happen in your meetings with teachers. Well, I love that. And I'm going to give a quick shout out to a principal whose building I visited last week. Melissa Barlow is the principal of Yukon High School, which is just outside of Oklahoma City. And after we had toured the beautiful parts of her building and classrooms, she took me into a room, a resource room right off of her own office where she holds teachers meetings regularly in small groups. And when we stepped in, she said, well, this is the place where I still get to have my classroom. And I looked around this meeting room and she had whiteboards full of notes and questions, places where there were lists of of action steps that teachers were taking or things that they were going to work on. Walls covered with lists of kids by name that they were targeting for remediation or for follow-up. And Melissa, as the principal, often will bring her teachers in there for PD because that's her classroom. She's created a space where she can have conversations with teachers about learning, but she's modeling it by creating a space for learning for them. And I was just so encouraged when I saw that. And I, in fact, I was jealous. I was like, I wish I had had this room when I was a principal. So I love that, John, because if we're modeling those things, it's going to not only be something that we can expect from teachers, but that they're learning with us along the way too. Any other thoughts on that before we jump into well, our next question? I just, I just think you, it's, it's kind of hard to have stu- high levels of student engagement when you don't have high levels of teacher engagement. I think those are just, those things go hand in hand. You can't expect teachers to do things you don't expect of yourself to do with your teachers. So you, if you expect it from them, you got to expect it from yourself first. And there's no excuses for not doing that. I love it. Well, let's, let's take just a moment to discuss that word rigor, because you have a chapter on rigor and and mastery, and you and I were talking before we started today's show about how that some people, some educators have a love-hate relationship with that word. So talk a little bit about that. Why why rigor and mastery is important to you and how you define that word uh, as as a benefit for learning? I think one of the things when you approach the word rigor, you have two choices of where you're going to go with it. You're either going to take that word and you're going to go to vigorous learning or you're going to take that word and go to rigor mortis. There's only two directions you're going to go with that. You either get kids fired up about learning or you kill, kill the love of learning for in kids forever. And, and, and many times I talk about this when I speak, um, my love of chemistry became rigor mortis simply not because the teacher was bad nice guy I really liked him he was a funny guy but the way that he presented content was so overwhelming and so challenging that I really I did whatever I could just to get by but I hated chemistry because the approach to chem- the rigor was work 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 more work you know more problems and that didn't work well for me but there were other classes where I had high levels of vigorous learning and it took me to the, to the next step. And I think when it comes down to rigor and mastery, what I talk about in, uh, in the teacher's guide, I really flesh this out, is that how do we get levels of proficiency in our learning? There are some kids that are coming to us way ahead. There's some kids coming to us on level. And there's some kids that are coming way behind. And one of the things that I think that we have to start with when it comes to rigor is we have to know exactly where they are as learners. 
if we know what level they're currently on, then the rigor, if they're at the very bottom, then the whole idea of, of level of rigor is how do we push them from level one to level two? Uh, if, and, and for some kids, they're at level zero. And we've just got to get them on the, we got to get them on the level to begin with. So one of the things I, I really promote in this book when it comes to rigor and mastery is you have to know what levels of proficiency look like for your content area based on the essential skills. Then the next mm-hmm. thing you want to do is how do you design assessment in such a way that those kids, not, not the teacher, that the kids know what level they're on, the kids self-assess, and the kids are able to walk up to the teacher and say, hey, I can't get to level three because I'm, mi- I'm missing this skill every time it comes. Can you give me something that I can go work on to get this skill close? I mean, if you think about it, we have kids like that in our schools. They're called valedictorians. And when, with a valedictorian, they know what skill they're missing, and they're like going to the teacher saying, hey, what do I need to do to fix this skill? They close their gap. They move to the next level. But the problem is when it comes to kids that have a history of failure or they have failed that state test every single year, when they walk into an eighth grade class and it's time for reading and they've never been successful, you can throw all of the difficult content at them, but they're not gonna, it's going to result in rigor mortis. So we've got to find ways to get kids to believe in themselves first, believe in their ability as learners and that they can learn. Yeah, they're behind, but with e- we're going to take it one step at a time. It's not about the top step. That's not what rigor is. Rigor has never been about the top step. Rigor is about the next step. And great teachers find how do I get where, what step we're on and how do I push them to the next step? Wow. Rigor is not about the top step. It's about the next step. It is. John, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm taking lots of notes because you, you have such a great way of summarizing things so quickly. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say rigor is either A, vigorous learning or B, rigor mortis, but uh, well done. That was, that was fantastic. And so I, I know Principal Matters listeners, as you're thinking about the standards in your classrooms that your teachers are helping students reach, how do we simplify learning for them? How do we help the students see what their next skill area needs to be so that they know what they're learning. They're not simply just doing work. They're trying to reach specific learning goals. John, any other ideas on that before we move on? Going back to the principal step, if you expect this in classrooms, you got to expect this of yourself with your teachers. I mean, you've got teachers that are rock stars. They've been doing it forever. You got teachers that that this is their first year and they are just, they're struggling. And so I think the very, the most important thing for principals is we got to find out what step they're currently successful at. And that's why I wrote the book and presented the hierarchy of instructional excellence. Some teachers need to be working on just resources for learning, the bottom step. Some teachers are ready to move from relationships to engagement. Some are ready to move to rigor. And that's the reason I provided you the book is so that way you can figure out what level is this teacher successful at? What's their independent level that doesn't need my help? And what level do I need to push them to next so they can close their gaps with my support and then we can move them to the top as fast as we can? Wow. And what a great segue to my last question, which is where you wrap up your book, which is taking those leaders from all of those steps in their growth until teacher leadership. So talk about that, John, why, why that's the last thing that you talk about in your book as kind of that ultimate direction for all teachers to, to grow. Well, one of the things that I think is very important in my role as superintendent, and even when I was high school principal, is that the, the problems I need to be dealing with are new problems. 
So in your schools, there's always going to be a new problem. But what keeps us from addressing those new problems, which actually are the are the key to moving the district forward, the next step for your district is getting through the, ne- the new problems. But what holds schools and, and, and leaders back is that we don't develop systems of leadership to deal with the old problems. You know, we have so many problems that surface that always that might come to our desk that are like, I've already addressed this. Well, the reason why you're addressing it again is because you didn't create a system of leadership to address that problem. And one of the things that that I think is very important in my role as superintendent is to build a ship of leaders where everybody is leading something. Everybody in your school should be a leader of something. Somebody should be your leader of what to do when the coffee machine doesn't work. Somebody should be the leader of what to do when that software program doesn't work. Somebody should be the leader of Google Classroom. Somebody should be the leader of how do I work with this new digital resource that we just purchased with our, uh, for, that replaces the textbooks. Who's the leader for note-taking in our school? Who's the leader of how to build relationships? Who's the leader of routines and procedures? The thing of it is, is if we're waiting on principals and assistant principals to be the leader of all those things, the principal and assistant principal will never have time to go lead their way through new problems because they'll be bogged down by the old problems. And in my book, oh, I, John. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, that's, that's what it's all about here. So I'll give it back to you. No, I, I, you're, just, you're just making my heart sing because so much of what I talk about, especially with, with leaders that feel so frustrated at the never-ending questions and the processes that they're trying to manage is, um, I call it helping your staff create key responsibility areas, yeah. identifying who, who on your team is responsible for all those nitty-gritty so that if a kid's money gets lost in a vending machine, it doesn't require you as the principal 15 minutes out of your day to help figure out the, the solution. You already have someone in your school who is responsible for helping kids who've lost money yeah. in their vending machines. It's everything. You're, you're exactly right. Whether that's copiers or vending machines or purchase orders or whatever it is, define who those people are that are leading those and then share that list with your staff so that people and teachers know this is who we go to. In fact, when I was leading my last school, our secretaries, beside their name tags, would have a list of things that they were managing so that when kids walked in, they could see, oh, this is the person I go to for my password, or this is the person that I go to if I need a a bus permission slip. And so I'm so glad you went there, John, because uh, that whole idea of new, of old leaders managing new problems, but all educators being leaders of old problems so that you can keep growing together. I love that concept. Thank you for, for sharing that. And one of the things I got, I love to do is I love to speak to kids. And today I was talking to my band, uh, my high school band, who just had a huge success at marching contests. And the first thing I did was I asked the seniors of 2020 to stand up. And I said, I want to thank you for your leadership. And be, because of your leadership and your example and you pushing your, co- your peers are, uh, to reach the goal, you reached one of the best accolades you could reach. And then the next thing I did was I said, all right, juniors, stand up. Juniors, you are learning from greatness, and your job is to continue to learn from these seniors because next year, how we get to the next level depends on your leadership or your lack of leadership. Those seniors are leaving a legacy for you to follow. And so one of the things that I think that leader, we often get into the road of the, the trap of is thinking that if I'm not solving the problem, I'm not doing my job. 
And I really want to dissuade people from thinking about my job. Your job is not, a leader's job is not to get the job done. A leader's job is to create a system of leadership that gets the job done. If you think about one of the big things that I think is really important to me is to monitor and adjust, monitor and adjust. And when I spend a lot of time monitoring and monitoring what's going on and then making adjustments to the system, my system gets better. But if I'm busy doing things and solving problems and putting out fires, guess what I'm not doing? Monitoring what's going on. And typically not monitoring is what leads to a big problem coming, coming to, your, uh, to your doorstep. Mm, so good. Well, Principal Matters listeners, the book is A Teacher's Guide to Excellence in Every Classroom, Creating Support Systems for Student Success that you can find on Amazon or solutiontree.com. John, thank you so much for your leadership and for sharing your lessons as a practitioner, as a teacher, as a principal, as a superintendent, as an, as an author. I want to give you an opportunity for any closing words to listeners about your book or any other content and how they can stay connected to you. Well, uh, obviously, I'm on Twitter, John Wink 90. I'm on Facebook, John Wink Lead Learner. I don't share much on my Instagram, but if you want to follow me there, follow me there. Uh, but one of the things I think is real important uh, is that this book is not a book to go read. It's a book to go live. And it gives you practical tips that you can put in your teacher's hands to solve old problems. I think if you're wanting to solve old problems, this is a book for you. If you're wanting to figure out how to build support systems for teachers, the Leader's Guide is going to be very good to help you as a principal do that. And I think together with teachers working from the Teacher's Guide and principals working from the Leader's Guide, chances are you're going to build a strong support system that basically it won't prevent old problems, but it will make those old problems go away pretty fast. And you can do the work, the meaningful work, the rigorous work of addressing those new problems. And, and I think it's going to, I think it'll help take your campus and your district to the next level. Well, John Wink, thank you so much for this valuable resource of Principal Matters listeners. Follow John on social media, check out his website, check out his book. And John, thank you so much for sharing these valuable lessons with Principal Matters listeners. Principal Matters listeners, I know that the work that you do is so important. Thanks for doing what matters. And we'll talk to you again soon. If you'd like other free resources like this one, you can check out all my posts at williamdparker.com.